Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Uh, we will be in Genesis 26. Uh, and we're picking up right where we left off this morning uh, in Genesis 25. Uh, so we're coming off the story with Jacob and Esau. Jacob gets the birthright, trades it for a bowl of lentils, um, and, uh, and, and has kind of a go of it. Now we're going to skip Genesis 26 is the only chapter in the Bible that's really dedicated to Isaac and what Isaac's up to. So we're going to go through this, and then we'll come back and talk about you know, what is happening here. But there's it's, it's really just a rinse and repeat of Abraham's life. It's like Abraham's life in one chapter, and Isaac lives and has some of the same issues and the same problems um, and is doing some of the same things but not quite the same, and the differences are what I think are interesting. And like I said, I, I, it's a nice chapter, but it's not like there's any big, deep things that I found in this chapter other than like rinse and repeat. So verse 1, there was a famine in the land. Besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham, uh, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Um, it says Isaac went. He seems to be traveling alone. Uh, when there's a famine, sometimes dads will take off or the family will split so that there's less resources needed in both places. Um, or he brought everybody with him, and they're just not being mentioned. So it sounds like, the writing of it sounds like Isaac's kind of off doing his own thing here um, a little bit, and, and we'll, see, uh, we'll see how that pans out. Um, but Esau and Jacob aren't even mentioned. It's like they're not even here. Um, they might be back home in Mamre or by Laha Roy, the, the well where they were at, and they were arguing over lentil soup. Um, uh, and they, or they could be down in the Negev and just moving the herds a little bit around here. Um, and, but we're going to see that Isaac's moved into this valley of Gerar. It's a great farming area. It's nice and flat. Um, and in verse 12, we get the first mention of farming in the Bible. Um, so it could be that he just went off to try to start doing some cropland, and then he left Jacob and Esau with the herds to take care of business there. So time has passed. It's been about 100 years since that famine with uh, Abraham in Genesis 20. Uh, so Abimelech, uh, this is where people think the word Abimelech is not the name of a person, but like the word Pharaoh. It's the name of the leader of the Philistines, whoever that might be. Um, so this is a likely descendant of Abimelech one. A lot of times kids, kings will name their kids the same name. So this would be Abimelech two or something to that effect. Verse 2, then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to in, in Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land. I like how he says, I'll tell you, and then he tells them in the, in the next sentence. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all of these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars in the heaven, and I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Notice with Abraham, he promised that he would be the father of many nations. 
but with Isaac, he doesn't quite make the same promise. He just says, I give you these lands and you'll bless all those other nations. Verse five, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So this is the first recorded contact with God in over 50 years. It doesn't feel that way because they passed all that time in the last chapter, but it's been 50 years since God's talked to anybody in this family. Um, so he does that. I always find that encouraging because I'll have days, weeks, months where I really don't feel like God's saying anything to me. And then you got people like my wife who are like, what's God telling you? What God, what's God saying to you? And some days I'm like, I'm nothing. I'm just doing my job. What God told me to do last time he talked to me. Um, and you get that sense of, I think sometimes we, we like to think we're being directly talked to all the time. And I like to try to keep that with a little bit of skepticism. If I'm going to claim God's talking to me, I better really know that that's the case or I'm using his name in vain. And I'm saying he's saying something that maybe he's not, which really differs across Christian denominations and how we treat that language of God talking to us or not. Uh, but in the Bible, at least, th there's no claim that God talks to, to Abraham and Isaac on a daily basis. Once every 50 years seems to be about the, the, the pacing of when God actually directly talks to them. That said, he expects people to follow what he has said to them every single day. So again, Isaac, like Abraham, gets a little nervous with the famine. He starts moving the herds down towards Egypt. And, and with, uh, with Isaac, God has to step in and say, nope, I don't want you to go to Egypt. Part of that is I think God is trying to tell a story with these families. He's trying to write his narrative on history. And if the sun goes to the world, that, that image that fits with Jesus doesn't fit so well anymore. And you wonder sometimes if God's trying to, in our life, do something that doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. Um, the covenant here then is very similar to the one that we saw back in Genesis 12. There's land being covenanted. There's a multiplication of kids. There's the idea of nationhood. And there's blessings to the planet, which is a new element with the Isaac covenant. Um, there have been, and I've seen really good kind of summaries of what Israel has done for this planet when it says you will bless all the nations. And Israel's done some amazing things. But in the last 50 years since the Jews have moved back into the Israel as their land, we don't even have to go back through history to see that the number of Nobel Prize winners that have come out of Israel are far way out of proportion to any other country on earth for population. The way in which they're transforming irrigation right now, it used to be that people would come to the United States to see how to do irrigation. They don't anymore. They go to the Negev. They go to southern Israel where they're turning that desert into full-on cropland. How did they turn the sand into good soil? How do they do this? And they're doing drip irrigation. So they're pioneers in how to do irrigation. They're pioneers in medicine. Heck, even in games and learning, Israel's one of the top places in the world where they're developing computer games for learning environments, which is my field. And it's kind of to see Israel popping up in almost every field of research and in every place um, as just some of the leaders in their fields. It's been really stunning to see that happen. Um, and, and Israel has, through those technologies, blessed the world. They've helped us to grow more food. They've helped us to do all these other kinds of things. You could argue the United States has blessed the world too. Um, oftentimes other countries, when they bless the world, it also comes with things that aren't necessarily blessings going out of that country too. Where with Israel, you really don't see that parity as much. Um, that's just my opinion. I, I, obviously, it's not biblical, but it's interesting to see how Israel has blessed the countries. You could just say, because Jesus came out of Israel, that that's the blessing that, that God's talking about here. 
is that, that Jesus is going to come through you, the Messiah will come through you, and he will, of course, bless all nations in a very spiritual way. Uh, and then you don't really have to go trying to interpret history and Nobel Prizes and things like that. Uh, because Abraham obeys, it's clear that the biblical record shows that Abraham's obedience, um, even though he had bad days, I think it's interesting how God says he'll take our sins and throw them as far as the east is from the west. Apparently with Abraham, God doesn't remember all of those sins and mistakes that we read through with Abraham because he just says, because Abraham obeyed me. And you're thinking, yeah, but he didn't always obey you. He screwed up quite a bit. But the way God remembers it is that he counts it unto him for righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. Um, those sins are forgiven, and with God, those sins are forgotten. Um, unlike Abraham, Isaac obeys, and then he screws up. So in verse 6, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar, he obeys God. And the men of the place asked about his wife. Hey, who's that good-looking lady that's with you? And he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say, she's my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca, that she, because she's beautiful to behold. Um, so what's interesting here is when Abraham pulled this same maneuver with Egypt and Abimelech, that was before Isaac was even born. So you wonder if Abraham like told these stories or gave fatherly advice to Isaac to say, if you're ever hanging with the Philistines, just lie to them. They'll give you stuff. Um, or if the sins of the father just go with the son, that there's a familial pattern of behavior here that's habitual, and it goes from one generation to the next. So this fear of what will happen causes them to kind of lie. And very similar things come as a result. In verse 8, now it came to pass when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window, and he saw there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Even if they're just smooching by... I imagine, like, Rebekah's out hanging clothes on the clothesline, and it's a sunny day, and the wind is blowing, and the sheets are blowing everywhere, and they're, like, dancing and playing hide-and-seek <laughs> in the laundry lines. I don't know why that's what comes into my head, but they're, like, prancing about like newlyweds, and the king's looking down going... That is not his sister. No, did they just kiss? That is, no, wait a second. So he looks out the window and he sees Isaac showing endearment to his wife, Rebecca. They're being playful or something out in the backyard. Then Abimelech calls to Isaac and he says, quite obviously, she is, or quite obviously, she is not your wife. So how could you say, or quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? And Isaac says to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. That's not a good reason. Um, so it seems to be, this is fairly common practice, uh, that there are habits in these cultures where if you see a married girl, you kill the husband and then you claim the pretty girl because both Abraham and Isaac see this as a pattern that they're trying to avoid, uh, which makes sense in societies where might makes right. The strongest guy gets whatever girl he wants. And if the girl's married, well, you kill the husband and now she's single and you can take the girl and haul her off with you. It's very caveman-like. Um, so that's different than the pattern of see pretty single girl, claim pretty single girl. Um, but when there's a husband in the way, you have to add the kill husband step. So it seems to be that's a pattern that's enough so to where they use these tactics uh, where if you want to claim the pretty girl, you don't necessarily need to kill the husband to do that. So Grant, you got to make him lay down, please. He's being a yep. distraction. That's good. You can lay on her feet. Verse 10, Shadow. 
And Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought a guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This Abimelech doesn't give Isaac a bunch of stuff. Um, but he does say, I'm going to put a protection on says You can't kill this husband. He's off limits. Um, Bimlik shows himself to be an honest sort of guy again. Isaac doesn't give him credit as a leader again, like his father did. Um, even with the pagans, and this, I thought this was kind of interesting because I'm still thinking about, well, this happened with Abraham too. Even with these pagan societies where there's no law or they're not following the law of God necessarily, there's still something on their hearts that says adultery is wrong you don't lay with somebody else's wife, that there's something wrong with that. So even in nations that have nothing to do with this growing uh, Israel nation and God's law and the worship of Jehovah, they still have this idea that you don't do those kinds of things. They also think it's wrong to lie because Abimelech reprimands him and says, why would you do this? That doesn't make sense. So there are certain things that regardless of where you're from or what culture you're from that seem to be wrong and that are written on people's hearts. Um, it's the same rebuke, rebuke we saw Abraham get in Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 20. They're not walking in faith, they're walking in fear. And that's not how we should be walking. We shouldn't be walking in fear. So if you do things like word searches in the Bible on words like strong and courageous and things like that from Joshua, right? Um, there's over 100 different references in in, in um Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Joshua, there's four of them because Joshua likes that phrase. Chronicle, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Psalm 31. Over and over and over again, this reference of the way we should walk in our faith is to be strong and courageous, to not be fearful of other people and what they might do. Daniel 10, 19 is one of those. Don't be afraid. You're very precious to God. Peace. Be encouraged. Be strong. And he spoke these words to me and suddenly I felt stronger. And I said to him, please speak to me, my Lord, for you have strengthened me. I really like that. Just a verse that I don't remember is one I've memorized. And I just thought, what a nice, Daniel's a great book. But just that idea of like, we get our strength from the Lord. And that's a mistake that Isaac made here. So then Isaac sowed in that land. We have farming, la-da, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Like, wow, those seeds really came up and gave some bounty. Hundredfold's actually pretty common, a single seed of corn might make a corn plant that would make hundreds more seeds. So a hundredfold when you're doing grains is actually pretty common. And the Lord blessed him and the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. So I guess prospering is going on there. Um, I looked up those different prospers to see if it might be three different kinds of prospering. It's not, it's just prosper, prosper, prosper. And he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and great numbers of servants. Um, so he stayed in the land, even though there was a famine, and there is just more prospering going on. I like how Isaac, even though he's doing something different, um, he's blessed in that new endeavor too. And I and it's because he works hard. He's being blessed in the work that he does. A lot of times we think blessings are just gifts from God that come out of thin air. But in the Bible, we see blessings often come alongside our hard work. We work, God blesses that work. And then the multiplication of the work is what God intervenes on. Um, but this new endeavor of farming seems to take off. Um, it's going to cause some problems in a few verses, but he is prospering. Um, God blesses the work despite Isaac's mistake. He keeps his promise. Mas Matthew 13, 23 also uses the same term, the a hundredfold term. 
uh, which is kind of interesting because it's the only two spots in the Bible we see that uh, being blessed a hundredfold. Um, and the other place it's used is in Matthew 13, 23, where Jesus is talking about witnessing to people. And if you put in that time sharing the gospel or sharing the word with people, it's blessed a hundredfold. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, <clears throat> so he had possessions, flocks, herds, and a great number of servants, verse 14, which is going to be the beginning of jealousy, dot, dot, dot. And the Philistines envied him at the end of verse 14. So they envy this prosperity that he's having. Um, the Philistines, we've seen Abimelech here in the land of Gerar. Gerar would have been a province of their territory at the time. A lot of people think that they actually had their capital on the island of Crete and that the Philistines were a boating kind of Greek-style Phoenician civilization. So this coastland territory in Gaza and the, in the Valley of Gerar would have just been a, a like a, a port city for them along that region. Um, which is which would explain why Abimelech would say, sure, you can take your herds up into the hills. We don't care. We really only want this as a port area and enough land to kind of keep some food going. But then you got this group of people with Isaac in that valley really thriving and becoming strong. And it's natural that the Philistines would feel like that's a threat to one of their kind of key fishing villages that they have there. So the Philistines stopped all the wells in which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham and his father. <clears throat> And they filled them up with earth. This is a really mean thing to do. Wells are a ton of work to dig, and they're super valuable. But it also shows the Philistines weren't using the land. Again, yeah, go ahead and do your stuff up there. But they were trying to get those people to get away from their city. Um, so they stop, They fill all these wells with earth. Uh, verse 16, and Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. At least he's honest. You're growing too big. You need to get away from us. Uh, prosperity is what gets the attention of the Philistines and drives the request to leave. Um, eh, just a couple Proverbs. Proverbs 27.4 Wrath is cruel and anger is a torrent, but who is to abide or stand before jealousy? Proverbs 23.17 Don't let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all of your days. This is a problem apparently that God wants Isaac to have. I wrestled with that idea too. God told him to stay here. He stays here. And now he has trouble with the Philistines. And he wouldn't have had as much trouble if he would have not stayed in this territory. So apparently this is a problem that God wants Isaac to have. And I like this idea because I, I like the idea that sometimes there's good problems. There's problems God actually wants in our life to help us to grow and change and develop. Um, I say that a lot of times to recent alumni at Bethel that are struggling to get their first job. And... A lot of times the counsel I'll give them is, have you prayed about it? And it's amazing how many graduates will say, well, no, I haven't. I just want a job. I don't know if that's how many. Well, have you prayed about it? Like, you should be praying about that every day. And you might have to wait a while for the right answer. But I think sometimes God makes a little anxiety around that job search period in people's life because it does a core bit of, like, formative character building really early in your career. So you think, if I get this job... <clears throat> I'll give God the glory. It's not that I earned the job, because in my efforts, I didn't get a job. I was unemployed on my own efforts. I was driving school bus on my own efforts, which I've driven school bus, so I'm not picking on all the bus drivers. And then when you get that job, you should be thankful to the Lord because you feel like God did intervene to help you get that job. Um, but often as humans, after a year working there, we still feel like we earned it and we did it and it was our 
our victory that we got for ourselves. So they stop up the wells. That's really bad. It's like burning your grain stores. That's like getting rid of the food for those herds um, and irrigation for the cropland that Isaac was trying to grow. Um, they'd been there since the days of Abraham, which means they were really good productive wells that tapped right into a good aquifer or underground river or something to that effect. So they'd been fruitful for a very long time. Uh, by uh, by going after those wells, then the peace is broken. The Philistines have broken their vow that they made to Abraham, maybe because they felt like they made that vow to Abraham, not to Isaac. And Isaac hasn't done the same kind of courting that Abraham did. Um, it's interesting, and, and I keep coming back to the typology because I just think it's fascinating. Like Isaac, there's no room for him in the in the Holy Land. Like, he's supposed to stay there, but there's no place for him. And when Jesus was born... There was no place for Jesus at the end. And we just heard that with our Christmas messages. Um, Jesus does good things like casting out demons. And the result is that the people of the land tell him to get out of their city. And in the same way, Isaac is trying to do good things. He's prospering. He's blessing people. He's employing people. And then he's told to get out of the area. And he's told to move on. So he has to wander a lot like Jesus did. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the Valley of Gerar. The Valley of Gerar is a really big place because I'm like, wait, he moved from Gerar to Gerar? Yeah, it's big enough to do that. He just moved inland a little more and he dwelt there. And Isaac dug, well, dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. So Isaac's still trying to find a spot where he can settle and stay. And he kind of keeps giving up territory. So Isaac digs a well. Um, uh, in this verse, in the next few verses, the servants are going to do the digging for him. But I think it's cool that Isaac does some of his own work. It says Isaac's digging these wells. Um, and he's, in verse 18, and Isaac dug again the wells of water. So I see Isaac as this guy who pitches in. He works alongside his servants. He's not above hard work and trying new things and innovating in agriculture and doing some of those kinds of things. It's kind of interesting because Abraham gets a ton of chapters, Jacob gets a ton of chapters, and Isaac gets one. So this is just kind of a guy that is like, he's like a chain link between Abraham and Jacob in these massive narratives and stories. But then there's just this guy that works really hard, digs wells, names things the way his father did, follows in his father's footsteps, and serves the Lord. And he faithfully does his thing and that you there's not much to you don't write chapters about doing the right thing you just say and and in, then in this time this happened and you move on to the next thing but that can cover years verse 19 also isaac's servants dug in the valley and they found a well of running water there but the herdsmen of gerar quarreled with isaac's herdsmen saying that water's ours so he called the name of the well essek and translated that means the quarrel well because they quarreled with him. It makes sense. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna, which means the hatred well. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over that one. So he called the name Rehobo, Rehoboth, the well of ample room, the fat well. Because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. So Ivan's servants do the digging here. So first Isaac does the work finding water, and then his servants do the work finding water. Do you see the connection to Jesus? 
So there's a training teaching so that the, the, they serve the sun, they put in the work, and we start to see springs of water popping up all over the place. So the enemy can't kill him because remember the king put a protection on him, but they can make life miserable for him. In the same way, Jesus says, I will be with you always. I am your shelter. I'm your protection and your shield. But the servants of Jesus, though they are protected by Jesus, the enemy can still make life really miserable for them. And there's still this work and this struggle over the land that has to happen. Um, And you could say that this entire chapter is this image of the church age that there's going to be little springs that pop up all over the planet. There'll be little fresh water churches that pop up. But over time, people are going to come into those churches and claim them for their own, or they'll fill them up with dirt and just soil the churches, or they'll fill them up with uh, claims and arguments and fights. And what you'll see in all these little churches all over the planet are quarrels and bickerings, and then the churches will divide and split, and then people will be angry and they'll go away, and there'll be the quarrel well, the hatred well, And oh, there's some room for us to do things here well. And then you find that churches all over the world that look exactly like that. You have churches that quarrel, churches that hate people, and churches where there's lots of room. Um, And I like the idea that there's running water there. In the Hebrew, that's translated living. And Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, I will give you what living water is the gift that I have for you. And it's interesting that he has that conversation next to a well. So there's a problem. The Israelites do all the work, and then the Philistines start to claim it like they're trying to pick a fight with the guy, but they can't initiate the fight because their king said they couldn't. Um, In the same way, I think the enemy works like that too. You have good people to do great work and have accomplishments, and then you get really selfish people that come in and claim those accomplishments for themselves. I think it's funny when I talk to like, uh, in higher ed, I'll run into like total atheist non-believers, right? And they'll have this entire spin on history that is confusing to me because there's no evidence of it. So they'll have this image that different eras were, you know, horribly not like they were. So, and then they'll say things like, well, Christians have just caused bad things to happen throughout history. And you're like, like what? And they'll naturally say the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition. Those are the two things they got. In both cases, we're talking about some thousands of people that arguably were not being attacked by Christians. They're being attacked by very self-righteous people that weren't following the Bible. Um, But then I'll say things like, well, how do you explain the the rise of hospitals around the world? How do you explain the rise of public schools or any kind of schooling around the world? How do you explain the rise of better techniques and implements and tools developed and designed so that laborers wouldn't have to do as much labor? How do you explain the diminishment of slavery when it's such a profitable enterprise? How do you explain the, the rise of women's rights? And they'll have explanations for all of those things that have nothing to do with the people that dug the wells, who were almost, to a person, deeply committed and devoted Christians just trying to make the world a better place. So they dig wells, they get living water, and then you get the Philistines coming in saying, oh, that wasn't them, that was just, we, you know, that, that was done this way, and that wasn't just Christians doing that. And you're like, yeah, it kind of was. I hate to break it to you. Um, do your history, understand who was doing what and why they were doing it. Um, why those universities in the Middle Ages were almost all started as theological centers. The top universities in the United States uh, were started off as Harvard Theological and Yale Theology and Princeton Theology. Those are centers to train pastors. So most of the universities around the world, at least those original ones, were made to do there. And the Philistines come in and they make their state schools and say, well, we invented universities. No, you didn't. You copied that. 
Um, but I'm glad they copied it. That living water is good, and, and, and the Philistines, I'm sure, got some good water when they claimed those wells. Um, notice that Isaac, here's another thought, Isaac avoids the quarreling. Instead of fighting over it and going into lawsuits about it and getting into arguments with the, with the I'm sorry, I'm calling them the Philistines. They later get called the Philistines. Right now, they're just the people of Gerar, right? The herdsmen of Gerar. Um, but I like how Isaac's just a person of peace and he just moves on. I'm not going to fight with you. I'm not going to argue with you. It's not, that's not a debate I want to have. You can have the well because I know how to dig new ones. And I think that's one of those things that is an option for Christians in the workplace to just say, look, I can work my tail off and make amazing things happen. You can claim them and I'm not going to fight with you over it. You can have it. I'll go do my new thing. And that reminds me of Rich Halverson when he said, in academia, there's going to, because I was saying, what do you do when somebody like steals your idea and tries to like plagiarize you? And he goes, you know, there's people, there's scholars in academia that do that kind of thing. And it's because they don't have any ideas. So they have to steal them. So they find very sneaky ways to coattail on people and do all of this other stuff. The second option to that is to just have different ideas and to move on. So he says, I try to have 100 good ideas per year, and then I do research or projects with them, maybe once or twice. One or two of them I'll actually follow up on. But a good scholar has hundreds of ideas. And Isaac, I see, is a kind of a guy like that. He's a, just a person of peace. Titus 3.9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they're unprofitable and they're useless. Psalm 50.10, for every beast of the forest is mine and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Why would we get petty over stuff when God owns all of it? Romans 12.19, beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give a place to wrath for it's written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. So Isaac follows through. He kind of lives a life like this where he's like, I'll let God do whatever he needs to do. Matthew 10, Luke 9, Mark 6, all tell the story where Jesus says, and whoever will not receive or hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust from your feet and walk away. You can have the wells. I'm going to shake the dust off my feet and I'm going to move on because you're not worth quarreling with. Verse 23, then he went up there to Beersheba, now that his servants found a good spot away from the Philistines, he returns to the place where Abraham first made that covenant with the Philistines, where he lived in chapter 22 after the sacrifice. Lake Abraham, he goes right back to the place where he heard from God before. It's a great idea. If you're not hearing from the Lord, go back to whatever you were doing in life where you last heard from the Lord clearly. Verse 24, and the Lord appeared to him with the same night and he said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear for I'm with you. So the tactic works for Isaac too. He goes, kind of returns to the place where God spoke last and says, okay, God, what now? And the Lord talks to him. I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. So he's now the God of Isaac. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and he called the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there and Isaac's servants dug a well. So I think it's kind of cool that the altar is there for worship and a well is there for water. And just that thought that we need both. We have, to, we have to have both the physical needs that sustain us and we need our spiritual needs met. Verse 26, then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuza, one of his friends, and Pekol. Pekol then is probably a title too for general or something to that effect um, because the Pekol that Abe met would have been far dead by now. Uh, the commander of his army 
And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and you've sent me away from you? And they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you because he keeps prospering even though they keep attacking him. And so we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. So they're attacking him, filling his wells and being really nasty. And part of what's motivating is that is that they're actually kind of scared of him. And I think sometimes people get angry and wrathful and mean and nasty. And what's really underneath all that is a kind of fear that they're just scared that people might like that person better. or That person will succeed and they won't or something like that. That you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we've done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. That's not truth, right? They've done some bad things to him. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So Isaac could argue with all of this, right? He could bicker with them right now and just say, you haven't done good to me. You've not sent me away in peace. You've not been faithful. Your people have been doing some nasty things. Um, So there's a half truth here. And the question is, should Isaac, should the church, should the bride and, the, you know, the should Isaac and Rebecca, should they get into it with these folks? And should they do that? Um, but Isaac, being a man of peace, says, sure, we can make a covenant. We can covenant something together. God's blessings are evident because they, they want peace more than a future war. Uh, where Isaac might be afraid of what's going on, God has assured him already. And where the Philistines used to be a threat, now they're positioning, petitioning for peace. So God's hand is in this. It might be that now the Philistines have had all the good land in the new wells. <laughs> so they've gotten everything they've wanted. And now they want to settle and make it. In computer games, I do this all the time. You go into conflict with the other nations, take the territory you want from them, and then you go and petition for a truce and a peace treaty. And oftentimes they'll agree to it, and then now your lands are protected and you don't have to worry about retaliation strikes. So I thought that might be the case of what's going on here too. Um, Also note that where they're talking to Isaac, Isaac hasn't yet dug a well here. It's in verse 33 that he digs a well here. So they've pushed him off of all the wells he's dug. And at this place, he built an altar first. And this is where they petitioned for peace because there's nothing to claim here. He's moved into land that doesn't have anything of value for them. Verse 30. So he made them a feast and they ate and they drank. And then they arose early in the morning and they swore an oath with another and Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. So blessed are the peacemakers. And that's Isaac. Verse 32. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well, which they had dug. And they said to him, we found water. So immediately after the peace treaty, they actually have another well that also produces water. And I think that's just, it's just beautiful how God works in this way. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of this city is Beer Sheba to this day. Beer Sheba is the well of the oath. Sheba means the oath. Um, here, Isaac made an oath with God by building the altar, and then he made an oath with the Philistines. So he got peace in heaven, and he got peace on earth. Um, Isaac's going to keep this oath. He'll be a person of his word. The Philistines, as we'll see, do not keep this oath. Um, Abraham builds altars, Isaac builds wells. And I thought that was a good summary if we had to summarize the lives of these two men. Um, and Esau, of course, builds sin. So that's the, the tradition doesn't go on to the, the next uh, son uh, that initially has the birthright, and then Jacob's going to take the birthright. There probably should have been a chapter divider right here. 
uh, because on verse 34 we're going to jump back to uh, uh, the story of Esau. We're going to go back to Esau and Jacob. So the last two verses to me seem like they start a new scroll almost because we just had a nice conclusion to this day. Sounds like a great way to wrap up in verse 33. But I'll read the last two chapters here too. And But we'll start with those when we pick up next week. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives, plural, Judith, the daughter of Beiri, and the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elan, the Hittite. So in the same way that they talked about Hagar and, and Ishmael marrying the Egyptian, and Hagar was an Egyptian, here they keep saying the Hittite, the Hittite, because it is clear Esau is marrying outside of this uh, community that God wants him to marry in. And they were, a, they were a grief of mind to Isaac and to Rebekah. So at this point, Isaac is not favoring Esau anymore. Now Esau has become a grief to Isaac, and he's probably turning to Rebekah saying, yeah, you were right, Rebekah. So um, he marries two wives. This is polygamy. This is not good. It's not what God wanted. He did not ask people to marry multiple wives. We're going to see a lot more of that in the Bible, but I just want to, at the very first mention of it here, it is not a good thing. It's a grief to Isaac and Rebekah. It's not a positive thing to marry multiple wives. Um, so uh, the Hittite thing is not small. Uh, it means that what's coming into their home, into Esau's home, are these alternative profane religions. So he's marrying outside of the worship of Jehovah, and those wives are going to bring that stuff into their homes. That's probably why Isaac and Rebekah really didn't like these women coming into their household. Um, Esau doesn't seem to show any care or respect for the religious traditions of his parents, um, and he brings these false gods right into their home. 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 14 through 16, is really clear on this topic and what God thinks of it. Be ye, I, this is out of King James, be ye not unequally oaked to get yoked together with unbelievers. Um, in marriage or any other business relationship, we really shouldn't be yoking with them. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What hath communion with light with darkness? That goes all the way back to Genesis 1 when you're looking at light and darkness. And what concord hath Christ with Bilal? Or what part hath he with believeth when it, with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So when you say the grief of mind, what happens when you bring false gods? It affects your family and it hurts everybody in your family. Um, and it causes division in your home when you're worshiping things other than God, um, which is, depending on how broadly you define idol worship, um, it's when you worship stuff that's not the Lord. It doesn't really bear fruit. And the older I get, the more of our friends, I just keep seeing that happen with them, even ones that call themselves Christians. Uh, so we'll go on with Esau and Jacob in verse in chapter 27 when we pick up again next week. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.